loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Lisa Smart. Lisa is the author of Words at the Threshold, and she's a linguist, educator, and poet. She founded the Final Words Project, an ongoing study devoted to collecting and interpreting the mysterious language at the end of lives. She co-facilitates workshops about language and consciousness with Raymond Moody at universities, hospices, and conferences, and lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. You can visit her online at www.finalwordsproject.org. Org. Welcome, Lisa. Uh, welcome. To, thank you. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you. I, I first have to just say a selfish thank you because your book just brought back so many meaningful moments for myself personally, being with people as they die and um, brought them back very vividly. And I, I really appreciate that. Those are precious um precious things to me so thank you oh thank you yeah, your uh, conversation that I had with you as part of writing this book was a really important element to the book as, as we'll talk about later so thank yes, you yes we'll talk about that later we do know each other spoiler alert <laughs> we, we met serendipitously and and had some conversation um, when you were collecting stories for the book. So we will get to to that later later on. But first, I'd love for you to share how you came to write the book. Um, you know what compelled you about um, these these things that people say at the end of life. Um, I have a background in linguistics, so I've always loved language and. My career was working with people who had a learning disabilities, so I was trained to look very carefully at language, and especially language that maybe looked a little different to us. Mm. So in the last three weeks of my father's life, um, I began to notice some really fascinating changes, both in his language and how he saw the world. And my father was a very bright, very lucid until he really entered the last three weeks of his life. And he was also a very rational materialist. He didn't believe in anything beyond this world. And um, so it really, uh, about, about three weeks before he died, he just started talking about the angels that he saw in his room. And that was the first thing that struck me. And after that, I began writing down everything he said. And throughout the dying process, he kept referring to the angels. And then three days before she died, she announced, enough, enough. The angels say enough. Three days left, and indeed, she passed on three days later. In addition to him talking about angels, which he had never spoken about while he was alive, if anything, he made fun of the idea, um, I saw shifts in, his language became very 
metaphoric, almost poetic, and also some of it was very nonsensical and puzzling, and I was very intrigued by it because I had never really heard that kind of language before, especially from my father, who was, as I said, a very lucid, very bright, very rationalist person, and he, had, he, did, he was not diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia anything before uh, he started moving into the dying process. So as I wrote these um, phrases down and became very intrigued, and then after my dad passed, uh, I went to Berkeley where I studied linguistics to the libraries there to look up information about the final words, um, you know, final words of the dying, assuming I was going to find lots of material uh, from linguists before me who had written about it. And to my surprise, while there's lots of uh, written about children's language and language acquisition, there was nothing about the linguistic patterns and themes at end of life. So when I realized that, I found myself possessed by this curiosity that led me um, to take a workshop with Raymond Moody, who is, uh, I guess they say, the father of the near-death experience. He coined the term near-death experience. And I took a workshop with Raymond Moody, and he started talking about his interest over the years in nonsensical language and the language of people's final days, and that he was looking for someone who might be a linguist to be interested in in doing this work uh, with him or with his mentorship. And I I was just delighted and thought, oh, my goodness, I think I've I've found my new pathway for for this time of my life. And for five years now, um, I've been doing this research with his uh, guidance and his friendship, and we established something called the Final Words Project. And uh, and through that, we've been collecting data um, and having conversations with people about what they've heard from their beloved at the end of life. You know, the the angel uh, story about your dad was very interesting to me because my, my mother was uh, a, a believing Christian person. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was a minister. And oh, wow. so it wouldn't be surprising that she might see angels, you know, we could say maybe co- comes out of belief system, but obviously not because your father did as well. But what happened with her is she told my wife the day she died, um, look at all those angels up on the ceiling, the little buggers. <laughs> Which was not the way she talked whatsoever. And so, in some sense, her, uh, you know, she found a sense of humor about uh, something she had taken so seriously. Yes. You know, there they uh, are. They're the little buggers. <laughs> I, I still crack up when I think of that. So it's it's a, a various kind of. Um, mysterious um, yeah. area in in the way I think of it. It's not always predictable, is it? Absolutely not. We are not talking about cookie cutter or formulaic um, when you look at final words, and that's part of the magic of it to me. I mean, there's almost this alchemical quality to those final days and weeks, and it really comes out in the language just 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 as surprising poetry. You know, you may read a poem and then there's a surprising last line that you don't expect. Uh, you know, for example, my father said something like, no, he said exactly, actually, my modality is broken. Right? Well, that's sheer <laughs> nonsense, right? But it's, but somehow it makes sense. Right? Somehow. Total so, yeah, sense. Very, I, 
Yeah, total sense. And yet when you pointed out how that wa- that wasn't quite correct in the book, I thought, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's not. And yet I I connected with the meaning of that. Right, right. That, and that we are process and his his process was was disrupted. Uh, you know, we are modalities in a sense. Yeah, very. that's very true. I hadn't even quite interpreted it exactly that way, and that is a beautiful interpretation. And that's one of the things I found about these final words is they're almost like oracles, you know, like reading tea leaves, that people write down the final words of, of their beloveds, and everyone might get a different take from it, depending on who we are and what our relationship is to that person. And there's almost something magical about that to me also. Um, so, yeah, it's been a really remarkable inquiry, and my life has completely changed on so many levels because of it. Let's let the listeners, since we've been talking about metaphor and the power of that, let's let them hear a bit from the book. Could you share that uh, section about metaphor? Uh, I would be delighted to. Um, it's chapter four is called, I Leave You With These Words. Travel metaphors speak of a coming voyage. And this is a quote from one of the participants in the project. I've got to get off. Get off. Offer this life. I'm dying. I'm dying. The trains keep going by. The trains keep going by, but I can't get on. I've got the ticket. I have the ticket. Remarkable metaphors emerge in the voices of the dying, engaging the metaphors that are meaningful to our beloveds can lead to healing conversations. Speaking of death as a journey instead of a battle, for example, offers a way to frame the dying process that is more about exploration and discovery than it is about defeat. The metaphor of the journey is a centerpiece in the language of the dying. People speak about reaching the end of one journey and in some cases about heading out to another. Words about transportation and vehicles abound. Annette my dental hygienist, shared her grandmother's final words with me. Yellow bus. There's the bus. Who's driving that bus, Grandma? Not sure. Not sure. But lots of angels. (laughs) You know, the first um, uh, way I I guess I was exposed to some of this end-of-life experience was through a friend of someone I was very close to who actually was pretty much in and out of coma and then one day got up and actually packed a bag. Amazing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> suddenly yeah. was filled with energy. I've got to, I got to pack. I'm, I'm going on a trip, you know, and... Uh. Fortunately for her, I would say uh, everyone backed her up on it. They just helped her pack. Mm-hmm. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. So, so I know that is so common to to be talking about this as a journey, and I think that's fascinating, don't you? Absolutely. And you know, the two things you just spoke of are both very common at end of life. One is something that's called terminal lucidity. Uh, a sudden kind of clarity at the very end of life where someone who might be unresponsive suddenly comes to life 
and does a variety of things. Now, this story that you shared, the person uh, entered into the voyage metaphor or story, but people say all kinds of things in those moments where they're lucid. Sometimes it can be a day, a half a day, sometimes only an hour with this kind of clarity, and it happens relatively frequently. And people may say things, oftentimes they say things that are really kind of these conciliatory or important words or they always hold value, but they're never mean-spirited or anything like that. So it might be mm-hmm. something like um, one, hospice nurse's, uh, one hospice nurse's mother had never told her that she loved her. And right before she passed, she had this lucid moment where she actually got up a little bit and looked healthier than she had in, in, in months. And she turned to her daughter and said, I've always loved you. Um, where sometimes people, a couple people had a flash and we'd say something like, tell everybody that I'm okay and I love them. So in those moments of flat, that, those kinds of flashes, you'll hear a very clear statements like that, as well as the kind of thing you describe of some kind of metaphor. So I might start talking about the big dance that they have to get to, so please get me my dress, or the big dinner and, and the guests are soon arriving. So um, there are a variety of things that people might say in that window of, of the city that happens uh, frequently. And one thing that fascinated me that you talked about in the book is that um, it's it's very hard to account for that biologically because right. uh, the brain is breaking down and, you, as you say, th- this sense of metacor- metaphorical speech might be even considered... Uh, a higher level of language in the sense of poetry versus prose or, uh, exactly. you know, that, that you really can't um, explain it by way of what might be going on in the brain. Absolutely. I mean, I have one example to me that was startling and I, and the person is a very credible, you know, I, so I trust very much and very credible his mother had Alzheimer's for um, several years and was very unintelligible and then went into a coma and then she had this, this moment of lucidity. She got up um, just a little bit, not all the way, but sat up a little bit and then explained to him where the files were that kept all the finances to help him so that when she passed, he'd have everything at his disposal. So you think about the brain power required to advise someone of that is to me it's, it's remarkable and it does suggest to me that there's something beyond um, beyond what we think of as the brain uh, that exists and that was one of the things that I really came to to believe as I did more and more of this work that there is some kind of consciousness that that might survive. Um, well that would be especially remarkable and I thought of this when I read it because she had to have been out and out of touch with her files for some time if she was at the end stage of Alzheimer's. Exactly. And people people in that moment have not been, you know, working with their paperwork, uh, we would assume. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And um, you Madeline Lawrence, who uh, is a nurse and a researcher, uh, looked at people in coma, and she did uh, research um, afterwards of people who came out and questioned them about how much were they aware of things. 
during that time. And it was really surprising to her that actually 70% of the people had some recollection of events, and many of them had awareness beyond what one would ever imagine. And they also reported kind of telepathic understanding or uh, what some people explain sort of an attunement to energy and people's thoughts and um, kind of vibrations, for lack of a better way to put it. So you, again, there was another, through my research, I discovered something else that led me to believe that there may be something more than just what we think of as the physical brain, because if you said in just those times we would expect a, a complete degradation of our ability, <clears throat> excuse me, to think lucidly or to create any, any kind of complex utterances, we actually see some real complexity develop. But, yeah, it's really intriguing. Let's talk more about that when we get back Mm -hmm. from our first break. It's time for us to take a break now. But that's just so powerful to me, this this, um, fact that that there's mystery. (laughs) 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 Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And you can find Lisa Smart at finalwordsproject.org. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. 
This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Lisa Smart, whose book, Words at the Threshold, What We Say as We're Nearing Death, is the result of her gathering stories of words at the end of people's lives. And Lisa, before the the break, I, I feel we ended in the mystery uh, you know, th- th- <laughs> I don't know how if if I were interviewing a, a sci- you know a, a biologist, let's say, who'd observed the same things, how they would fit that into their paradigm. Fortunately, you don't. You just are fitting it into a linguistic paradigm and um, sharing that. But I. I really adore the idea that there are things that can't be entirely explained in life. Um, Me too. This, this one being one. Um, but uh, you were mentioning during the break that uh, you're also very captiva- captivated by the kind of um, stories that, that en- people at end of life may may tell over time where the thread, you can follow the thread if you're writing down everything they say. Could you, could you uh, say a little more about that? Yes, um, I call them sustained narratives because they're stories that continue over a period of time. And this is one of the terrific things about writing down final words because you can start tracking more carefully what people are saying because sometimes it does sound like nonsense to us. But if we write things down, oftentimes these kinds of patterns emerge but over maybe several days or several weeks. So, for example... Um, there was one gentleman about three weeks before he died started talking about the train. And he was just getting the train out of the station, but he was having anterior wreckage. And there were some problems. So, and then a few days later, he starts talking about the special railroad stuff. And then a few days later, the conductor. And anyway, this continuing storyline over a week, over a period of weeks, and what's remarkable to me is if I were to ask you about uh, a conversation you began two or three weeks ago, you probably couldn't tell me, right? You probably couldn't sustain, go back to any kind of narrative you began several weeks ago with someone. So I found it really fascinating. It was like this sort of meta story that was going on. And, um, and there were several cases of another gentleman talked about a boxing champion, who walked into his room and the boxing champion then got his son and then over a period of, of days, um, uh, then more people came into his room and so forth with the boxing champion. So it's, it's just really intriguing and it makes me wonder, you know, what what is it in our consciousness that keeps these stories going? And, you know, they, they have a very dreamlike quality, um, a very dreamlike aspect to them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, yeah. it, it, it's interesting because that part of the book actually brought up some dream experiences that I've had. So, so I agree. Where, um, you know, over time, uh, I I dreamt sort of the same thing, but with changes. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. The particular series that that I'm thinking of was actually about dying. Uh, oh, wow. I was I was really young, but um, you oh. know, in each dream, I'd be sick or I'd be about to die. You know, all these, and it unfolded over time until it reached a conclusion. And um, wow. uh, you know, not thought thought about at all. It just happened. But the <laughs> idea that that people at the end of life 
uh, are still engaged in this ongoing um, exploration uh, that they experience over time and that comes out that I found that really fascinating. Yes, and it really, you know, I really uh, got the sense that for so many of us, and of course there are, are exceptions to this, but for many of us in those weeks, if we're, if we do have weeks, I mean, unfortunately some of us die suddenly, right? But in, if someone has uh, several weeks or months, there really seems to be a way that our unconscious mind, um, or someone might think of our higher mind, is preparing us. And it comes out in the language, and dream researchers who have studied the dreams of the dying say it's also revealed in the dreams of the dying, where oftentimes people do have journey dreams and dreams of trying to make peace with the family. And so with the final word, sometimes it seems to be this very thin line between sort of dream language and dream experience and um, and what we think of as literal reality. However, there's also indications to me that people are not just in a dream state, right? It's mm-hmm. not just yes. that because you also see something that, um, that I call hybrid sentences where someone might have one foot in this world and then another foot in... The, the other world, maybe the dream world or the unseen world. And you'll hear someone say something like, get me my camera because I want to get a picture of this. Or I guess these days, get me my phone. <laughs> for, yeah. for but but uh-huh. the one quote that I got was someone still had a camera around to so get me a camera, I want to take a picture of this. Or um, uh, get me, you know, I need to pay at the gate. Get me some money. I need to pay at the gate. And there has one foot here, and it seems like a, another foot in some unseen dream world. So it's not just that people are completely in the dream world, and that's the other yes. thing that intrigues me very much about, about this time of life. And, you know, the other thing, um, you, you talked a lot of it for, for a, a good section in the book about unintelligible language. Um, yeah which I took to mean language that we can't understand in a linear way. Yeah. And and exactly. it made me wonder because you know there's there were times with each of the people that I've been with as they died where um their language was unintentional uh, un- unintelligible you know literally in in this earthly world but right. I could still understand them. Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. I, I could I could join their context, and other times I couldn't. Right. Um, I just I right. just couldn't couldn't figure out what the message was. Um, exactly. But but I always figured there was one, you know. And I'm wondering how you think it would impact a, a person's dying process if they're surrounded by people who are afraid of or or dismissive of or rejecting of what that language system, the way that yeah, it's communicating. Yes, that's a really good question. And, you know, you think about children. Uh, when children are first acquiring language, there's a lot of nonsense. So what we think of as nonsense that comes out of their mouths um, in many ways. And, um, and really we know as moms and Fathers and you know, just we know 
that the best thing to do is to enter into their world and to um, comfort and reassure them that their language is beautiful, <laughs> right? And respond yeah. and engage that language. And I really feel the same way. And, and to realize that as we're looking at this unintelligible language of the dying, it has, I think, a different function, of course, is when, you know, than when we're children. But there are two ways that I look at it. There's that nonsense that is what I call linguistic nonsense that just you really can't make sense out of it. Um, you just can't. It's something like I have this in the beginning of the chapter. Um, yes, I would like some scrambled eggs, but where would you reappear? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it, it seems, you know, the more I've spoken to people, there really is this quality. One gentleman called it sort of the exhaust when we switch to dimensions. He thinks that when our brain switches, and whether it's dimensions or just another part of our, our processing, it's almost like the exhaust that comes. You know, we just... The, and and there's been other research to show that when we're speaking nonsense, we're actually seem to be engaging parts of our brains that are more associated with mystical and transcendental states or even music. So, you know, we really don't know the full meaning of those, that kind of linguistic nonsense where the language doesn't make sense, but it does seem often to occur when people are in some kind of either very overwhelmed, you know, we see people like soldiers at war will start speaking nonsense when they're just terrified and they're overwhelmed. So that might be partly it, so I'm not sure that's the full meaning. And there also seems to be nonsense emerging where people are shifting between ways of thinking about things. And, um, and I talk about that more in the book. But we also have more commonly or people reported it more commonly, situational nonsense, where someone may say something about the boxing champion that I mentioned before, <laughs> it's standing at my bed. Well, you know, for those who are living, um, may not see that boxing champion, <laughs> right? But for sure. the dying person, it's very real. And, and why not enter that person's reality? Because I don't think any of us know what lies around us and beyond us. Just like you said, it, it, it is a mystery. And I think to embrace that mystery and to um, step into it can actually, you know, just like it can be a total joy with our, with our young ones to step into their make-believe world or at least that, their world at that time. It's the same invitation with those who are dying to step into a world with them and connect with them. And the amazing thing to me, which happened with my father, it is I stepped into that world, I felt like I, I felt a sanctity to it. And I felt as if I were, was expanded by doing that. Absolutely. And my spirituality was expanded. So, yeah. I, I, it might be a good moment for you to share the part of your book about unintelligible language, quote, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, matter of fact, the, the um, chapter is called Nonsense or a New Sense. Nonsense or a New Sense. Making meaning out of unintelligible language at the end of life. Yes, I would like some scrambled eggs, but where would you reappear? It can be heartbreaking when the very people who once offered us comfort and connection no longer communicate in ways that we can understand. 
My friend Leslie shared a story that resembled those I often heard. My mom's losing it. Last night she told me, look at all the guests with us. It's great to see everyone join us here for dinner. But there is no one there. I don't get it. I feel like I'm losing her even though she's still with me. She's just not making sense. Sharon had this story. My mom started talking about boxes and needing to know where to put them. I did not know what boxes she was talking about. And then I heard her jabbering away, and I could not understand. At first, it was terrifying to hear her. But as time progressed, her nonsense no longer frightened me. And I began to feel that the nonsense I heard was somehow helping her process her life in some way I wish I knew exactly, um, in some way, I wish I knew exactly what was going on in her mind. But it was so hard to hear and make sense of her. And I had the distinct feeling that it was also a private reality. It does seem that many of those who are crossing the threshold enter a private reality, and nonsense may track this extraordinary passage. As a linguist, I do not use the term nonsense pejoratively. I use it simply to refer to language that does not make sense in terms of what we know about our five-sense, three-dimensional world. When I was reading that part of the book, and I did, I did send you uh, this story, I was thinking about uh, my wife when she was pre-coma, but not by much, and um, sleeping a lot. So she was asleep. My friends kicked me out of the room for a while, n- not that I wanted to go. And, and uh-huh. they, they came and, and pulled me back panicked because she was trying to get out of bed, and she was a very large uh-huh. person. And uh, she was saying, I have to get on the mama train. I have to get on the mama train. Well, no one else had context for that. But I had sort of been, you know, traveling with her to a degree. And I'm huh. like, she's getting ready. She's she's now, you know, because for a long time it was, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was like, oh, she's, st- she's starting to get on the train, you know. Oh. So because I had joined her reality and I knew, I knew, uh, if anyone was going to be there greeting her, it would be her mother. They wow. they just adored each other, and so I was able to join it, join that with her, and you know say, okay, let's go. You know, get on the car, get on the car. I yeah. mean, you can really, um, you can really help a person that way. And yeah. and I'm nothing special. It's just that we had been engaging in a deep conversation for a while. And I had let go of my preconceptions by that point. I love your story. And boy, is she fortunate that you were able to step into her world with her that way. And you know how you mentioned about the I don't want to go and I don't want to go and how it evolved into the mama train. And this is uh, what we were talking about earlier, the these sustained narratives and how things evolve. And it seems we are almost wired or we're at least very capable of coming to greater and greater peace with what, where we're headed, whether it's, you know, what it, where, wherever we're headed at the end of life, which, I, again, I don't think any of us 
anyone knows for certain, it's certainly the mystery, but the whole, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, and you're tracking that with her, and I love the mom train. It's, it, and it's so, so typical and common of this end-of-life language, and, um, and again, she was speaking of Mama, who, of course, we hear so much, so many references to people's parents at end of life, because oftentimes people feel or see them before they cross the threshold. And, of course, sure. they were back to, to the form of transportation. And I love the way you engage people in moving with her and, and getting that Mama train going. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> it didn't, you know... I, I mean, I think I I probably at that point had joined a nonlinear space. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I remember saying, you know, I went partway with her. Um, yeah. And and at a certain point, it just doesn't matter if there's a train there or not. You know, right. there, it's just important what is the next thing to do. Uh, exactly. I say that as encouragement to folks because I'm sure if I hadn't had a lot of practice before that, it could have been very frightening. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think you get, you say it beautifully, and and it's it's absolutely what I've seen. And then sometimes too, the added gift besides giving comfort to the people you know that we love is sometimes by entering that world, we can feel greater comfort in what absolutely. is happening. And Absolutely, that's, and that's the secondary gift in it. Absolutely, and um, we're we're it's time for a break. But I have to say that that stays with me as as a very beautiful memory because it did calm her. Yes, it did help her. Yes, and yes. Um, that's that's so opposite to helplessness. Amen. So, Absolutely. More after the break. Um, so, listeners, you can find me at, at Good Grief host page. You can find me at weatheringgrief.com, my website. And to find Lisa Smart, go to finalwordsproject.org. Back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. 
You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Lisa Smart, author of Words at the Threshold. And uh, before the break, Lisa, we were talking about my um, my dear wife's mama train. <laughs> I, I'm very warm that you that you love the mama train too. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah. what I was saying during the break, which which I think uh, is worth repeating on air, is that uh, there's such when I think about that moment. It's such a tremendous moment of connection to her. Um, And, and of course, that's what people are, um, you know, fearing losing. And and, uh, one thing I would add is that I actually didn't feel a sense of disconnection for a very long time after she died. And and I think that part of that was... um, because those, because I kind of went with her, yeah. uh, you know, because it, in a sense, when she died, it felt as if she was everywhere, not nowhere. Yeah. And, of, and of course, eventually we have to deal with the loss of the body. Um, right. But I didn't feel a sense of disconnection in the way that some people describe yeah. So that may have a lot to do with these these words, these communications that we actually had. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, language is how we human beings connect, right? It's one of the primary ways. Of course, there are other ways. And there's many types of communication and language. And um, but the spoken word is one of the, is maybe the primary form for most of us. And what happens is when language changes, which it often does at end of life, not always, but often, we're invited to change with it. And it can be really scary. And I think the invitation in the book is, um, you know, I was trained as a linguist that whenever I encountered language that was strange or different, if I were to hear Chinese or something, I I wouldn't go, oh, my God, that's terrible, that's scary, but I would think, wait, 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 let me try to make sense of it or let me try to entertain it or enter into it. And if somehow we can imagine that we're in a new territory, just as if I were studying Chinese, or even more fully with the heart, just what you were saying is looking for the points of connection and, and, and how surprising and how much they can surprise us in terms of how much they touch us. When I was a child, my father, when I was afraid, used to make his hands like they were butterflies. I totally mm. forgot this until right now. He used to make his hands like butterflies, and in his final uh, couple days of life, his hands started fluttering above his head, which is also very common. <clears throat> As people are leaving, they, 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 they reach upwards, and his hands were reaching up, and I noticed they were fluttering just like they did for me when I was a baby and I was afraid or a child and I was afraid. So in that moment, even though in some ways he was very far away, he was so close to, to dying, I felt that connection and that recognition in, in, in that way. And I've also heard from so many people, um, and this is one of the biggest surprises to me in doing the Final Words Project, so many people talked about 
healing and communicating with their loved ones after they had passed. And, um, yeah, and I think especially for those who did transcribe their final words, the final words of their loved one, or at least were really conscious of connecting, just as you had said, is when you do have those connections in those final days, for some reason, or understandably, that connection seems to be maintained after after they leave um, leave this plane. So Absolutely. There was something uh, something in the book, I can't remember the details, but um, something where someone was sure that something was sent to them after the, the person's death. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, a few weeks after my wife died, I went into a, a local store. They have knick-knacky things and all that. And there was a, I'm not, I was not an angel-oriented person. <laughs> but there was this uh, there was this really beautiful angel with a, a brown face, uh, and and I knew it was from her. Mm. Mm. Undeniably, it was a it was a final gift. And mm. do we talk about those things? I think a lot of people experience it, but people yeah. hesitate to talk about it because. Um, you don't really, I don't, I don't really want that reality questioned. Ah, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. It's such, it's such an intense uh, experiential reality that yeah. somehow it would feel um, very awkward or uncomfortable uh, to, to have someone say, oh, that's a nice, you know, thought or something <laughs> to, right. to somehow diminish it. Um of course, I can stand up to that, but I'm guessing some people can't. <laughs> you know. No, it's true. And what you're saying, it is very personal and intimate. And when you have that moment of just knowing, and that's something I don't know if we'll ever be able to measure, you know, that sense of knowing. You know, we all get those intuitions or flashes, but, um, or just senses. But there are these certain synchronicities that do occur at a rate that I had never imagined would be the case. And when I was doing this research, oh my, I mean, at least 70% of the people that I spoke with. Now, of course, there are people who probably were more inclined to having those experiences because they, you know, they came and spoke with me and shared their, their stories with me. But mm-hmm. still, I was surprised by how many people who I originally contacted about the final words research and then later on, they told me, oh, my goodness, I've had these synchronicities since my loved one passed away. You know, anywhere from rainbows, you know, rainbows, very bizarre things with electricity, you know, light yes. flashing on and off, smoke alarms. I, I, one, yeah. So I, I love that part that. of your book. And yeah, we can't get away without talking about how kids absolutely don't question this. Yes. Um, yes. And and not because I'm in it, but because it's a good example. <laughs> I wonder if you share part of the book that it's that's about me and my daughter. <laughs> Absolutely, it's such a perfect example, and um, yeah, and and kids do seem to be connected to the unseen world. And and one man who is dying, a grandfather, um, said to that his toddler grandchild says, how can that baby be in both worlds at once? 
<laughs> so, you know, it's definitely there seems, there seems to be a way that children have their, um, their feet in both worlds. But uh, yes. is this a good time for me to share this great yes, story? Yes, I think so. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Cheryl Espinosa Jones related that when her partner, Joanne, died at age 45, their young daughter was highly attuned to her costume. The night before Joanne was leaving her body and she was so close to death, our daughter wailed out with such intensity that it brought Joanne back into her body for one more night. The next day, however, our daughter ran into the room without any fear. My wife died peacefully, quite beautifully. Soon after Joanne's passing, my daughter pointed to the bedroom ceiling and said, Mommy, look! Look at all the birds. That seemed very significant to all of us in the room. And these beings were coming to help her wherever it is we go. She had entered the realm of the unseen with Joanne, who she called Gijo. The next night, my daughter slept with me, and then in the middle of the night, there was a big thud as she fell onto the floor. This woke me up with a start and was very unusual for her. I asked her what had happened. She told me, I saw Gijo on the ladder going up and she was on the top and I wanted to go with her, but she said, no, no, honey, you have to go back down. With those words, the young girl fell to the floor. I have to make a confession on air, which is that yeah. I failed to ask my daughter permission to share that <laughs> when, when I got your book. <laughs> I had to, she happened to be home. She had uh, some some surgery and she was home getting taken care of. I said, Amber, <laughs> I messed up a little bit, but <laughs> but I think she was actually pleased. Uh, yeah. she, she had no objection, so yay. Oh, <laughs> really good for you. <laughs> but, um, you know, she was about two and a half, and I feel as mm. if there's this time between maybe two and a half yes. and three where this starts to change. Yes. And I wonder if that's, <clears throat> in a way, related to linguistics and linear language and us teaching kids how to um, interact in a linear way. I don't know. Yeah, it just occurred to my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, <clears throat> great question, because when we're first born, we have the capacity to understand and to produce 800 phonemes. Those are the sounds that make up spoken language. And then by about six months, we, our capacity begins to, well, reduces to the phonemes of our language. If, there, if we have second and third languages, then to include those as well. But for English, that's 44 phonemes, right? So um, it, we, as we come into this world, it seems, with a very large potential for language, and it becomes more and more crystallized. And it's fascinating because it also seems that we're born with the ability to almost communicate telepathically with our parents. Mm-hmm. Or at least there's a very profound nonverbal communication. And then that also seems to shift as we get language. And this window of time that you're talking about, I believe, 
if I recall correctly, that about three years old is one of the times where language becomes more and more crystallized and that we become, you know, there's sort of a, uh, um, a continuum or, of how easy it is or how it is for us to start learning other languages as, as our own language becomes solidified and language acquisition becomes harder as language becomes crystallized. And there are certain landmarks, just like the one I mentioned is six months where we, you know, we go from 800 phonemes to the number of phonemes of our native language. And then at three, I also think there's another critical point where language, literal language, becomes more crystallized. So um, I'm going to look that up. You can let me know later. I'm remembering a story that Stephen Levine used to tell about uh, a three-year-old wanting to be alone with their baby brother. And once they got alone, they had a monitor in the room to make sure everything was okay. Mm -hmm. And the Mm three-year-old said, baby, baby, remind me, I'm I'm forgetting what God is. Oh, Which is a my. lovely story. <laughs> what a lovely story. That's a lovely. Yeah, yeah. and it does yeah. seem um, these two researchers who I discussed in the book did. It does seem that as uh, as we get older, we lose this sort of telepathic, or at least the ability to to connect with what we might think of as the unseen unseen world. It definitely seems to be the case. There's um, one story in, in the book of this woman, Terry Daniel, whose son developed a degenerative disease. And over time, um, he passed away. I'm going to have to interrupt the story. Oh, People will have to go bet. read the book. But I wanted to end, Lisa, with the way you start the book, the dedication for your dad. For my father, who continues to sing to me in an octave higher than grief. I really, truly love that. (laughs) Being a singer, maybe that's part of it. Uh, I really want to thank you for being being here today. It's been really a delight. And I hope people will, um, it's, you know having this way to 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 enter the world of uh, the nonlinear, which is one thing your book does. it's it's really lovely. So thank you very much. Uh, what a pleasure it's been. Thank you, Cheryl. And next week, I'll have Leonard Shimjak, a therapist and author of the Roadmap Home. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.